All right, that's your last Dorito, Austin. <laughs> Let's get this thing started. Trying to snack boldly. All right, well. <laughs> Let me express myself. <laughs> what? So while Austin is giving himself diabetes, I guess I'll start this thing out solo dolo. I'm Nicole DeFore. Austin is engorging himself on Doritos. And it's we, a healthy amount of Doritos. Okay. <laughs> and we are the Rough Draft Podcast Show. Thanks for listening to our second episode. Very exciting. Before we start, <laughs> we are so excited to talk about the fact that we have our very own original song for our theme podcast. Song, bitches. Woo! Austin, um, who is in charge of this theme song? Well, this theme song was generously donated by Flint Hill. Great local band, repping your College of Pennsylvania. Flint Hill, check them out. Check them out on Bandcamp. Just look up Flint Hill Sucks. Two band members, one, Ryan Emmert, is a gracious donator to the York Review, involved with the whole thing. It's called The Story So Far, fitting for a literary podcast. The song itself is fire, it's lit, all lit. of the other hashtags that we are developing. Hashtag swag. What are we talking about today? No, we just don't have that dynamic going yet. I know. No, I think it's good. So that little voice that you just heard <laughs> belongs to Liz Dawson. She's cackling with fear, but um, she is on our podcast team, and she has been doing more work than I have. Sorry for being a piece of shit, you guys. And she had the opportunity to sit down with Austin and interview yeah. Travis Kurowski and Vito Grippy. Co-editors of Story Magazine. Story Magazine. So, Liz, introduce yourself. Don't be rude. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I just had the opportunity to go to L.A. with those guys, Vito and Travis. Los Angeles. To the AWP Writing Conference, which is the biggest writing conference in the nation. And we promoted Story and sold Story in a booth. Met tons and tons of Editors and writers, like wonky glasses and button downs. Hipster nation. Hipster nation. But it was a really good time. We were all super jealous of you. Yeah. Watching your Snapchat stories and Instagram posts while I was in Pennsylvania. (laughs) But right before they left, we did get this interview. Talk about the whole literary magazine spectrum. The future, how innovative it can be. How innovative it should be, really, and how it's not yet. What other topics do we talk about, Nicole? Uh, I just think it's so great that here at York College, we're more, you know, on a first-name basis, friendly relationship with our professors. We call these professors Travis and Vito. I don't think you can say a lot of other colleges can do that. They're the best. Yeah. They teach publication management, uh, literary publishing, which they'll be talking about. Class sizes are like 16 kids, we're all a family, it's great. So, I mean, interviewing them, I'm sure, was not really nerve-wracking. It was just talking to them with a microphone present. Yeah, it was great. And it's great that they have a national literary magazine that they employ us to. Um, We all work there in some kind of capacity. A lot of the interviews that you go to require experience, and they give us experience, legitimate experience, to get into the literary world. Literary wizards. (laughs) Literary, lit wizards. Lit whiz. Lit whiz. Lit. 
<laughs> New hashtag. Okay, we should probably play the song at this point. Okay. Jumping over words. Flint Hill, everyone. One, two, three, four. Woo! Well, thanks for stopping by, guys. I know it's a busy schedule you guys maintain. Professors, but more importantly, co-editors of the Story magazine. And Story was actually the first lit mag I ever read. So I wasn't about the culture or anything until I came here. Took your intro to creative writing class. But then I got into the literary magazine world and realized there's like hundreds and hundreds of them. Like over 800, I think, last time I checked. And I wanted to know, like, how does story work to separate itself from the countless other literary magazines in circulation? Yeah, there's always that kind of cool first literary magazine story that he has. Just reading one the other day. I have my own issue at Paris Review, which oh, nice. I told you. But, yeah, and you got involved in that Paper Dreams, publication yeah. management, building that, sort of expanding your, your knowledge base. Yeah, no, they're, they're definitely really cool things. One thing we talk about in the publishing class with students is like how various they are. Some look like, I don't know if you know Esopus mm -hmm. or any of the weirder one, six by six, I think, with the cut corner. I think it weird, so it's kind of hard to distinguish yourself, which is kind of the important part, why weather magazines are kind of cool, is because they're so diverse. But I don't know, I think just sort of the mission is why we thought it was important to make story, that there wasn't a magazine we thought devoted just to narrative as a concept, no matter what the art form was. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, that was the initial, our initial talk, right, was A, something devoted to story, but then also something that encapsulated genre. And, and I think at the time, at the time we were sort of on the cusp, we thought we were pretty modern, but I think that since has happened, even without us, you know, it was already sort of in the works. So, yeah, just to to reach like a diversity of voices and styles and genres and put them all in one. Yeah, like the breaking down that Ryan wrote about in the first issue, right. the, the genre walls. And I think he was writing about how they'd already actually been broken down and crumbled, probably. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was important. We we were reading, well, not just Benjamin Percy, but like across the genres, and we would glance at our literary magazine shelf. We realized why we weren't, one of the reasons we thought we weren't reading as many literary magazines as we thought we should, was something was mm -hmm. something to do with sort of, they very literary and very kind of, they didn't seem to represent kind of the broad, broad ways we read, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think, and also we, um, as you can tell, at least from the first issue, and as we transitioned into the new design that we carried over to the first three issues and the issue four, I think we've been very interested in making it like a well-designed object, which I think isn't always number one priority, I think, for some literary magazines. It definitely should um, be. Because of how busy I think some of the people are, honestly. I think people do it for the love of it, and they're also raising their families. Yeah. And the Speaking cost. of some of those three kids over here, right? And the cost. Yeah, I think a lot of that, you just do what you can. We were lucky to have Gabe, Gabe Dunmeyer, uh, my neighbor, and our good friends and co-founder co of Story Supply Company, to really do it for I mean, basically nothing. The design for the launch of the journal and the illustration, which was amazing and really really, I think, sold the product right away it was the little illustrations he did throughout the magazine, the logo, sure. and, and the, the author bios. We got really lucky to have design across the alley. Mm -hmm. um, literally. Yeah, literally <laughs> across the alley. It See, also immediately established, I think, a voice for story. You know, when we launched it at WP, they didn't know anything about us, so it immediately placed us in the conversation because they were just so 
immediately nice to look at, but then also the, the work that we featured was pretty awesome. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think without Gabe's design and his illustrations, they might not have made it one to our table. I mean, we launched like a lot of other publications through AWP, where we're taking Liz and Kayla Young um, next week. And I think that AWP had like 14 or 15,000 people at it that we launched. And the book fair usually has like 800 to 1,000 tables in it. So for someone to kind of wander your direction, I suppose, these other people across the book fair, it was Gabe's design that got him to wander yeah. our direction and then to pick it up and then to see Andrew Millward's opening story or James Hanahan's story or Mary Naomi's comic. Well, story incorporates hybrid and non-traditional forms, which I think helps distinguish it as well, such as Mary Naomi's comic in the first issue. Do you think that publishing stories like that is risky at all? President. I hope so. <laughs> President listening to this. <laughs> I hope it's really risky. Hello, Dr. GS. No, I, I, yeah, I think art needs to be kind of risky. We're lucky your college supported us with this publication and let students work with this publication. It allows us to produce art and publish some great writers and artists, but I don't think we could do that ethically without making it kind of great. I don't think you mm. can make it great without being risky. I don't think safe art really kind of works. So hopefully they'll never think that we're being too risky, but it does take some risk. If you look through the first issue, there are some pieces that kind of push ideas of what a um, story is mm-hmm. and what um, <laughs> decent content is. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but I don't think what anything we're doing is risky um, compared to like Ai Weiwei um, in, in China. Really, really fascinating um, performance artist and um, all the installation artist. Or um, um, people like Marina Bromvik. Oh, I love her. Right, um, who sits and yes. actually, she one of these installation pieces. She yeah. sat and she had like objects around her, and she didn't move, and you could do anything to her with the yes. objects. And one of them was a gun. What? And it's just, uh, and we don't do anything sort of risky yeah. like that. There's not that sort of risk involved. Um, I don't. I don't. People think so. were like cutting her and stuff. She it's, had knives. Very and, strange. Yeah. yeah. So that's 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 a. a risky art. And I think there are some historical magazines, um, such as the Evergreen Review, which got um, censored um, and, and which published some really early sort of sexy erotic material, and, and the Chicago um, Review that got censored by its University of Chicago when it published um, the beat writers at Connor S. Thompson. I mean, those those people have done risky things, but it's, I mean, they've come before us. I think at this point, I don't think people are kind of worried about risk in literary magazines. I think. Um, I think what we risk um, publishing literature in magazines is uh, being too safe, which I think a lot of places still do. I don't yeah. think yeah, the I risk, the thing that. we do is kind of risk. I think you risk if you are um, not, well, like, so one of the things we thought about story as a concept is stories. We wouldn't want to be involved in it if it wasn't sort of representative of the richness and diversity of stories, which we're trying every every time we think about it and work on it to get better um, at it. Um, and that means the diversity of our masthead, that means the diversity of the content. Like that's. That's just correct. I mean, that's not not risky. I think the riskiness is just not considering those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, again, it's I mean, people are kind of busy and stuff, and it's hard to kind of move outside of sort of what is just um, I mean, the norm, um, I guess, um, in, in American publishing. But it's, I mean, that's just ethical. Well, it takes I work. suppose. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> Well, like what we brought Ryan Britton, I mean, just for diversity of genre, we realized we had no real connections to the fantasy and science fiction world. We knew it was an important thing we read, um, but as people out of um, MA programs, so you MFA? Yeah, MA, you MFA, right? MFA. Yeah, MFA, um, PhD and MA programs um, from, you know, typical American institutions, um, they, didn't, they didn't sort of nurture those contacts. They nurtured literary contacts, right? But they never nurtured the 
diversity of genre context, what kind of literary realism. Um, so that was, it took effort to find Ryan and to find those contexts, right? It's still not quite, we haven't found all those contexts that, that we think represents storytelling that's going on there. We're doing better now internationally and we're working, that's, that's really hard as well. Um, we made some contacts with some publishers like Two Lines Press and other places. So work internationally. Hopefully Calypso editions with some of our students have started interning with. Kyle is now and hopefully um, they're going to take on, we're going to bring Martin, the publisher of Calypso editions. They're an international publisher from Philadelphia. He's going to come here next year so we'll meet him, hopefully form a bond, but it's really hard to bring um, international work and to find it because it doesn't, as Liz, you know, it doesn't come in from the submissions. Yeah. Like those are all, you know, a, a pretty typical um, submitter is came out of a, a college or graduate school in the United States and found us from Duotrope or some other place and is submitting. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, it does take effort. Yeah. Well, even with all this diversity, are there any kind of blanket characteristics you look for for good content? What distinguishes the good stuff? I don't know. You're still working on that too. I know. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I don't know. And that's actually something that for me like changes a lot. I don't know, Fido, do you have a ready, ready answer for that? I think I have what I've used in the past, like maybe for occasions just like this. But usually, I, I think you're right that Travis said, it changes. I mean, on any given day, I can read the same thing and have a different feeling from it. But usually the ones that sort of stick with me later, right? Or I even mean, when later I'm thinking about the story or something that I read, that those are usually the ones that I know I have to go back to. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it's not a very good gauge, I guess, or maybe it is. But yeah, it just changes. It's almost, I mean, I think you kind of know good when you see it. It's when we have this threshold, and this is what we talk with Liz and Kayla and other interns and editors about, about great. Like, good is kind of easy to spot, but it takes a while to make sure that something's kind of great. Sometimes great, I think, is kind of easy to spot, too, but there's, that, there's a lot, I think, between kind of, kind of good and great. I mean, my own problem is kind of slowing my life down to recognize, like, for submissions through agents or if stuff I'm reading, looking for new work, or the countless submissions we get unsolicited, uh, pre-submittable, to kind of pay attention and not just like rush through it like yeah. I do making my kid breakfast or something. And that's why I think it's hard, but I mean, we've, we've felt that having a couple readings on pieces keeps us honest. It's not just like me or Vito saying, oh, that sucks, get rid of that, or something like this. Mm-hmm. But just slowing down and reading the thing and not thinking, oh, it's not like the other thing I've read before that I like, let's just get rid of it. It's, it's hard, so it makes it harder for us to get through submissions. I see Liz and Kayla you do the same thing. You see, it takes us a while to get through the submissions pile because we don't feel good just being like, well, I don't know, it seems kind of weird. I'm going to get rid yeah. of it. We feel, and Austin, you're a reader now too, and you have been since, since late last semester. Yeah, it's, it's that slowing down and paying attention because you don't want to miss like the next Basquiat or something <laughs> like this, right? Or Marina Abramis. You don't want to miss those because it's different than what you're used to or they're not writing in correct syntax or it doesn't feel like Lori Moore or something like this, you know. And they also sort of all blend together after a while. Yeah, so it's hard so to stay it's like awake. you have to, yeah, you have to be on and off with it. Yeah. I do anyway. Yeah, that's that's what people have talked about. Other writers talk about sort of the worst part of online. Um, yeah, how the online is worse, I think. Yeah, how it's changed submitting. Like, I think everyone loves online publishing. It's great, but that has changed the whole um, sort of like Digital has changed everything about how we publish and the submissions process, and that they can just keep flowing. Yeah, yeah you guys just oh. mentioned the rise of the digital world. People kind of predicted it would be the death of print, and it hasn't happened yet. Do you think it still has the potential to kill print? That's Vita's question. Definitely. I think it's going to, as long as, like when we set out to make 
the magazine, we were really conscious of the idea that if we're going to do a print thing, it needs to, there needs to be a reason for that. And I think there are still enough people that care about print in that way, the way that we, with the, you know, the, the double-sided covers and the design, you mentioned six by six earlier, right? Where they do the letter pressing and the corner, you know, it's, so it takes it beyond just the stories themselves. I mean, the object mm -hmm. itself becomes part of the story. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, people have been saying that it was going to kill, like the internet would kill print for a long time. And I don't think that's happened. I mean, people are adapting and changing, but I mean, most of the magazines that I like, even now, they do both, right? They have a print, mm -hmm. and maybe they don't print quarterly or even twice a year, you know, but they still do a print edition because they know it matters. It's a different experience. I guess I mean, this is sort of what you were talking about, how we consider the print object. I mean, that's good. I guess I think that's what's done, right? It hasn't, it's not going to kill print, but it has to, we have to think differently now when we make print. Like, you guys think about the story supply. Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm going to make a print thing and have you buy it and use it, you could also take notes on Evernote, on your phone. You can do other mm -hmm. things. You have to make this an experience that yeah. isn't just an either-or phone or this, but this is a different experience than just putting a note on your phone. Right. Right. And I think that's, yep. that's how we've always talked about it. Because, like, as they say, the video didn't kill the radio star, right? I mean, electronics are not going to kill print, but it's changed radio, right? Um, yeah. um, there's, there's different radio. There's less radio. There's radios that be higher quality. Podcasts have suddenly come um, uh, in a really big way to be part of our culture. You know, I think it's good, I think. Would you say that the website, Story Online, is more of a supplement to the print magazine? Well, I know now we're doing tons of different stuff with it. You, you guys are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys are. I'm, I'm nervous about when you leave. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think I like the word supplement. And this was originally when we decided to start publishing, especially the fiction and poetry and, and literary essays online. You never want it to feel like it's... Well, we're also doing this, right? I mean, you know, so the word supplement kind of feels that way, but it's, I mean, I know what you mean. It's, it was more just because, like, I don't know, we, we're printing this thing once or twice a year, mm -hmm. and we want to be able to share cool stuff the rest of the time as well. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, how that was born. And also the fact that we had so much good stuff to choose from, and we only had about 90 pages to, yeah. to fill, you know, for a print magazine because we couldn't really make it thicker. So a lot of that was just born out of, well, if we had like 10 more pages, I would put this in this, you know what I mean? And I guess the internet gives us that. Well, I mean, one thing we were nervous though about, and since the beginning of talking about story, we figured one of the reasons we didn't read literary magazines as much as we might should, uh, maybe believe or create nonfiction, we tossed around something we did read. What we noticed about the ones we did read is usually they didn't feel like just kind of a ton of content that happened to be tossed together, like 50 poems, 10 short stories, a couple essays, and just felt like this sort of volume kind of a content with no kind of rhyme or reason, mm -hmm. and any poem or any story kind of got lost amongst the rest, and you couldn't distinguish one or the other. We never yeah. wanted to do that, so we never wanted to. So that has been the problem with the good to great sort of thing of choosing content, mm -hmm. to be really selective, because even if something was great, we just didn't, might not have room for it, because if it's put in a ton of great stuff next to each other, you start to not notice any of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it gave us, yeah, an outlet for some great stuff. And to be honest, I mean, they get, they get more readers online. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly um, last year this time, I mean, getting a lot of readers on the website. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but 
I mean, yeah, some of those pieces, like Sam Martone's piece, some of those pieces have gotten a lot, a lot of traction. So we felt, like, you know, we yeah. have to kind of yeah, online, I mean, share that way. And, and so we, if you publish in a, in a small print magazine, right, if at best you're going to get a thousand people to look at it, that's not reading it, right? That's like a thousand people that managed maybe to see it. And yeah, I mean, we were getting, you know, 10,000 views a month on certain pieces. Wow. I mean, pretty awesome you can't you that's something you can't do in print or at least yeah. not easily you know so that that kind of fascinates me so I'm always torn I don't know with online publishing versus print and, and realizing that like we had our contract change so that and not to steal rights away from writers mm-hmm. but we felt we need to ask for those online rights so let's say right now we're transitioning over from the, the monsters issue to the, the, the issue three the migration issue uh, on issue one, we didn't ask for digital rights from all the authors. So I can't just come up and toss up now some stuff from issue one because I didn't feel like it got enough publicity. I didn't publish it well enough. Now I want to give it a second shot. I can't because we didn't get those rights. But for issue two, we got those rights from the authors. So I'm almost, I think all of them in the contracts. So now we transition to issue three. So like, all right, we can still keep publishing stuff from issue two. Now we can turn it to digital right and keep enhancing that keep revisiting that so we you know, keep doing the work of publishing and making this, this work public which is all great work like it's amazing work that's in the issues and I always think how can we get it more traction well now we're, we change the contract so we can have we do a print bump and then we can share the stuff online so we keep kind of sharing we think we're really really careful about the work we publish great work kind of through a couple different meetings so the print I mean still I think it's it, it, it should function great for us and that will still continue to address that sort of stuff in print and, and I did that with the print issue as well right I mean with the, we always put in the uh, classic reprint or you know what have you yeah for that reason yeah. we're like you know there's lots of people that maybe didn't see this the first time around and maybe because they're introduced to our magazine they're gonna get a chance to see it now so and, it's ambitious work and the bundle Literary too. Publishing. <laughs> I don't want to give this away um, because all you 5,000, 10,000 podcast listeners out there. <laughs> but in each issue, we have a QR code where anyone that buys a print issue can just go get the online content for free. And I mean, I imagine somewhere that gets disseminated a little bit, passed mm-hmm. to a friend or something, or an agent might get it or something. And that is another way that that content can move from just someone's bookshelf on across to other people, right? Oh, I love this. Oh, I don't have my issue. Let me just email you that that, that, that issue that I, I downloaded from the website. Because, I mean, we're not, I mean, luckily, this isn't, you know, the way we, this, we don't get money from this way. This is sort of, we do it for the love and for the art. So, some stuff gets disseminated. We charge for it because we also pay our writers. And we're hoping after a while that this can actually, you know, build its own legs and to, to stand on as a publication, at least partly so that funders either from the college or other foundations when helping us can, can feel good that we're, you know, we're working to make it a financial, financial success. I always found that interesting that you do pay the writers because I'm sure a lot of them would just like the chance to get into the magazine to be published. Why do you feel it's necessary to pay them? Well, because I mean, I mean, I would want to be paid. I guess because people, people, no matter if they're building a bridge or a house or a chair, I think they feel like they're making something that has their own imprint and stamp on it. They're making it in a new way, right? And story writers and poetry writers are the same thing. They're building something that's important to society, and they feel like they need to be remunerated for it. And I, I feel like I, I feel the same way, that they're making stuff that we cherish, that we love, that's important to us. I mean, you can't imagine a world without art, right? Without writing, right? 
but still, I think we have trouble moving to, but we should pay for it. The part of it, right? Yeah. Just, you could imagine we're without chairs, and you pay for someone to have chairs. Try to make it culturally sort of in a time where people value art, but they also don't value the cost of making it. And though, I mean, yeah. you know, like you're right. ask any artist how much work they've done for free. It's usually way more than they'd like to admit. So, again, it's like one small step, right? Well, it's interesting because you guys pay the print people, we don't pay the digital people. And I guess it's it feels more prestigious to have your stuff in a print magazine and like have it on a bookshelf and be able to hold it. And yet, you're sitting here talking about how the digital stuff gets more views, more people are reading it. So it's almost better. I feel like I would personally want to be in a print magazine more than online, but I don't know if it's necessarily right. So you get the fifty dollars or hundred dollars, whatever. Yeah. But it's a, it's a possibly less impact, and you have trouble sharing it in your own social feed or your own social media with friends. Yeah. And were, it's going to be a slower publishing cycle. Yeah, I think it's a question. I mean, it's something we've talked about too, because we'd like to pay the online writers. That's mm -hmm. what I mean, that's it's just it's a strange sort of. It's hard to monetize that. I mean, like, even if we get 10,000 views a month, let's say, on the site, that's still not really that much when it comes to mm -hmm. collecting money from that. Yeah. I mean, because we know, I mean, and Vito's totally right that we live in, I think, in a, a contemporary culture that understands and loves art and culture. I mean, we sit in front of our phones all day and stream second series of Daredevil, <laughs> right, or whatever, but we, we have trouble kind of wanting to pay for it. I mean, even myself, I have trouble wanting to push the Louis C.K., yes, I'm going to give you $5 for the next episode of Horace, mm -hmm. and whatever, right? But we also know that we're part of also, it's art is most part of a gift economy in a way that, you know, beef or whatever isn't always, right? Or often we also make art because we just want to share it for free, like I want to, I want to give you this poem, right? I want to do this community theater, right? And so I think somehow how what we're doing, I mean, also acknowledges that some of this stuff is we're gifting, we're making. It's why people blog, right, for free, mm -hmm. and we tweet, right, because we also want to make stuff and just share it because we love sharing stuff. So I don't think we're always going to be paying for art. Art's always going to be kind of halfway between both. But yeah, but you're right. I mean, again, you might want to put your thing online. I think that the yeah, I mean, we do end up paying different attention, as you said, what we even select. Like we're not going to take like Andrew Milan Milward's story in the first issue, Hard Feelings amazing thing to make into his first, his second collection, um, which is getting some great reviews. Um, that's so long. We, I don't think we publish it online. We have to publish it in installments or something. I mean, there's no one's going to read that. It just, oh, just kind of feels yeah. like a story that could work online. And I'm not sure, I mean, it's a good point. Again, yeah. there's no chart that I could pull up and be like, and here's one. You know, it just, I think there are things that just fit, and I'm, we're always kind of grappling with this as we accept things for online, and I think that's shifted, because originally we were taking things that I think felt more like that story, or longer, and I used to really feel like, you know, why can't we read 20,000 word stories online? Mm -hmm. and I think, well, but people just don't. Yeah. Well, when I'm less likely, I'm sure someone has, right? Yeah. I mean, they're much less likely to, right? I noticed even in just putting little things up on Medium, there, where I used to tell you the time, yeah. and you know a seven-minute read got way oh. less views and engagement than a three-minute read, and that's that's crazy. But so it's true. but it's the reality of the thing, mm -hmm. right? And it's not 
we can we can argue what's wrong with that all day long, but at the same time, it's just what it is. So I don't. I mean, I still have trouble saying what we should cap online work, but to some extent, kind of have to think about it in terms of how would somebody read this, because that's going to change the way the story is read and the way it's consumed. And this is what we talked. We were talking about this earlier. Do we need to, if we want to do longer, different stuff? Do we need to adapt the website then so it could yeah. put it function and stuff? But yeah, we work within the meaning. Well, there seems to be a trend for charging for submissions right now. I know both of you guys aren't big fans of that, but do you think it's becoming a reality that literary magazines are going to have to charge for submissions to stay afloat, or do you think there's a better option? I mean, the sad thing is, so it's you talk about, what's that? No, no, go ahead. Well, you talk about, like, <laughs> is it going to become necessary, right? So I think there is a problem of, like, so, for example, when Amazon came out selling everything a bit cheaper and it got to announce a bit faster and more people started using it, when more people started using it and it got more capital and more social prestige, uh, more acceptability, then yes, it's a takeover a bit more of the market and it gives it more capital and it has more sort of bulk you can throw around and then it becomes not just an option, but, but the option more the option mm -hmm. because that capital has been infused into it. I think there does, there could be possibly, totally hypothesizing, a trend that if more magazines start doing the $3 submissions fee, gain more capital, right, that's going to allow them to then sort of access different readers in different markets, right, that makes it maybe less capital because they're not doing that, might be able to do. So it could then become the norm, become more more what I see as a problem. But no, I mean, we would never... Um, what did um, um, was it Dan or Dave? Was one of the guys at Barrel House said, "Why would we charge people for their dreams?" <laughs> but for me, it's like I wouldn't charge someone to audition for a musical or something like this. I couldn't. When when what we're lucky, someone would give us their thing because we have no content without them. Like it's not like we're just. It, I mean, they, that is the content. That is what we're selling. Is um, the stuff that they're sending us? Thank God. Why would we? put any sort of border between them doing it, why would we charge them to do it? I mean, the, so then they have to decide between us and another one that's charging them. So then like, oh, well, you're charging me three bucks an hour, so now I gotta choose between one of them because I only got, you know, $5 or whatever. I, I just didn't, I see no reason. I think just because capital is there, it's because what they're calling like a revenue stream, when people talk about it, other editors talk about it, is there. I don't think that means you have to access it. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, there are a lot of revenue streams I can think of right now that I don't think are ethical to access. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't, yeah, I don't know. What if we start charging like 50 cents just to look at our submission guidelines? Right? <laughs> I mean, it could, like, when do you stop charging people? Like, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. I think it's funding funding your magazine on the on people's broken dreams. Right, people that they have. The, the broken, I think, was. On their broken yeah. So, yeah, no, I, Austin, you said you're not big fans, but I really don't think I'm a, like, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. Like, I've, I've tried. Understatement. Yeah. And I've actually looked at our submission numbers and thought, hmm, if it's like, multiply that by $3 each, you know? And it's, I don't know, it's a lot of money, but it doesn't feel like enough money. Like, it wouldn't bring in enough money for me to be like, oh, well, maybe we have to do that. I don't know. No, I couldn't. I, I just can't. I, I, yeah, I, I really couldn't. That I can sleep at night. I don't think I would have trouble. And my good friends, like um, lots of my good friends, they, they work at publications that charge missing fees. So I don't disparage them at all. It's just something that I, I find, 
ethically sort of uh, difficult to wrap my head around. It's like, mm-hmm. like Rita said, I just cannot conceive. Because as a writer myself, I, I, I can't. I, I yeah, I don't <laughs> want to pace it. Look at um, my 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 work. I just, I, I mean, unfortunately, I just don't. Yeah, I just take them off my list, and I and I hate to do that because it's places I like, and I'd still buy their mag. I mean, I'd still buy their product before I would send money to read my work. And it's just a weird, I mean, I don't know. I the, want to get over it. Yeah, the broken part of dreams, I think, is the important part. Because, I mean, as Austin, you were talking about, like, why, I mean, paying is great. I mean, people probably just love to get into the publication. Because, you know, especially as a younger writer starting out, like, I would have done anything to get in the Paris Review <laughs> at, at your age or anything to get in all these magazines, right? Um, and so, but it's that sort of desire that this $3 fee is kind of, Kind of essentially charging like mm-hmm. your desire and your also lack of power and that just yeah. doesn't doesn't seem right like imagine like so i know i'm bringing this all thing to an example the liz because you're you're about to graduate so and you have probably this feeling of a lack of power in economic sense right lack of power in whatever professional area you want to access mm-hmm. um, a lack of power in job right or said desired job and so imagine if to see your resume right just to apply to a job they were going to charge you ten dollars you might yeah, pay insane. it, right? Uh, it is insane, but you could see yourself being like, "But I, I mean, I've worked so hard but, at this, right? Yeah. I've, yeah. I mean, I put, I've already what you call sunk cost, right? I've sunk so much effort and cost and dreams and just heartache into this. I'll pay your ten dollars. I don't feel good about it, but you kind of feel stuck yeah, in a rock and a hard place, right? When I think about it, if I really wanted to get into a magazine, I feel like I almost would be like, "Well, it's three dollars. I've paid to be in a contest before." And do you, think, you were like, what are you doing, you know? Do you think that weeds out a lot of the people who aren't as serious? About that's always the argument. Yeah, that's always the argument. Like, oh, it's good because it puts a little what they call friction. I feel like um, it weeds out the people that are more serious. Yeah, but know? who knows? Has anyone known to run the stats about who you're weeding out? Because I think me at 20 years old, they're like, well, this is the way that it works now, so I have to do it. And me, yeah, you guys are growing years later. Place, like, yeah. I, I just. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because I know that I it, it realistically like I have to submit that story how many times, right? What's the, there's no general rule, but a bunch. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, and even if I'm really selective about the places, it's still a handful of places, let's say, right? Or ten places. Okay, well, not just thirty bucks. It's not a lot of money, but it's money. I could have bought two the right magazines, right? <laughs> I bought my kids like dinner, you know. So I don't know. I. I'm trying to find any sort of positive aspect to it for me personally, and I just can't. I just don't get it. Do you think lit mags in general are due for a renaissance? Like, what needs to change? What? A renaissance, like, how? Like, what are you... I mean... What are you framing that around? Well, I would think there's kind of a rise in, like, niche culture kind of mainstream to like like vinyl records and obscure things and grow your own foods and I would think lit mags kind of fit right into that culture and should be um, fit right in but why aren't they well I mean they are I mean we're just I think it's you know you I mean I think people in college kind of just kind of move into new niche cultures and it's like a new one you guys moving into like welcome to the weirdness over here right over that New York Reviews model model, Nicole's <laughs> motto, which I love, to be weird with us, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's admitting that, yeah, we're, you know, a part of this sort of, like, 
weirder kind of thing that isn't part of the mainstream. But it couldn't be part of it. If it was part of the mainstream, it wouldn't be. I mean, I think most artistic practices don't exist in the mainstream. I mean, some of them do eventually rise to the mainstream or access the mainstream, but that's like, I mean, everyone knows any starting out singer doesn't, I mean, they might imagine it, but they don't really conceive they're gonna be a Beyonce, right, or something like this. They know that there's this whole world of singing that happens that isn't that one or two people like most of the population has heard of, right? Well, a lot Same of for these yeah. things are coming up into the mainstream. Like the weird subcultures now are trending yeah and accessing the mainstream more so you don't think do you think oh that if that i mean I'd be, yeah i don't know maybe magazines need to be weirder right they need to actually be more because i don't know they go ahead well i mean the question sort of a fallacy i mean so let's just say because I mean, what you're saying is that mainstream is diversifying and it actually is no mainstream anymore because it's just a ton of niches right if you have all the niches sort of involved in the mainstream then that's then there's no kind of broad thing we're all talking about at Maine, right? There's a bunch of niche sort of things where that different yeah. people are talking about, right? But I also think like the kind of person who is attracted to the niche genres are becoming more able to make the mainstream type decisions and spread it out to large cultures. So. Sure, yeah, we've seen that throughout like the 20th century right into today, right? Um, that we've had the sexual revolution, right, the beat generation revolution, all these different sort of revolutions that have, have sort of altered sort of what is sort of norm, right, and what's, yeah. Yeah, and it's happened the same with the rise of like geek culture, personal computing, and the internet have allowed us to, well, the internet to know more, just in general, right, but the rise of these sort of Silicon Valley and sort of geeks with money and power have made that actually, not just Michael Jordan, who I want to be, or Ronald Reagan, if just someone want to be Ronald Reagan, or Nancy Reagan, right, I want to be this person who reads comic books and make things on computers and maybe does whatever kind of all day. Yeah, no, I think that I'd be totally right. Yeah. Do you think lit mags are headed that direction? Or I bet Steve Jobs read some lit mags. <laughs> he did actually. His um, his uh, half sister or something um, was uh, Mona Simpson, and she published a lot of letter magazines and had some some short story collections. And I think maybe a novel. So yeah, yeah, certainly. I know you guys for the mixed sweeties. You know that's more kind of a bigger, more popular thing. Mm -hmm. That's that's one that does certainly kind of rise in ascendancy. But there's, you know, besides mixed sweeties, probably Paris Review, right? Paris Review has always kind of been. I wrote this paper about this, which I don't know if I made you read. Um, I make some literary publishing students read, but Paris Review kind of started this sort of rise um, in sort of popular taste and being invested in sort of popular circles and money circles um, by actually kind of doing the hard sell and really trying to get invested in sort of the mainstream culture, right? Because they felt, I mean, felt that was their job, right? They're, to get these poems to you, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're someone's aunt, if you're a college student or whatever, right? And they were going to go knock on doors and hang up posters and do everything they could. But the other thing, I, I don't know if it's from that essay, but something that we read about how Litmeg's kind of celebrate being the underdogs and almost don't want to break out of that. Yeah, and that was, yeah. Yeah, right, and we, we talked about that too, right? Like, would never want to be too, They're too cool designed for the an object, right, or try yeah. to sell it or something like this. And the Paris Review was not like that. They're like, no, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we'll try to sell you this magazine and get this poem in your hands any way we can, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think that, that's, I mean, as a, as a poet, and a fiction writer, that attracts me, that they're gonna to try to get my work out there as opposed to somebody that's too nervous or embarrassed or feels like, 
they shouldn't listen to hip hop music or whatever, and mm -hmm. their their literary magazine, the literary publisher, should not be involved in certain parts of the culture. It shouldn't try to be sold. I think it's you know then my poem. I mean, this guy should be the ones creating the culture, right? Creating the thing. Mm -hmm. It filters out after a long time, <laughs> as opposed to I guess trying to fit in. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Paris Review would probably you know say so we're we're making this the culture. This is what's important. Versus Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I just don't want to put our name in the same stuff in Paris Review. Like, <laughs> but we are. I mean, that's the same idea. It's just like, if you like comic books and superheroes, awesome. Look at this, like, originally perceived literary or whatever that means. Right. right. Poem mm -hmm. about Magneto. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe if you're this person who, who come through the academy and only reads literary fiction, check out this Mary Naomi comic. Yeah. That, that does all the same things on an emotional level as this does, it's just doing it in this cool way. And, yeah, it's, and it's sitting next know. to something that looks more Yeah, that's what we've always felt important. Like I wanted something my aunt would read, um, Sandy, and Sandy who does <laughs> read a lot, she loves, loves, loves books, that she would read alongside you know, yeah. a student MFA program, alongside maybe some Wall Street executive, right? We wanted kind of something that's just good, right? Not, um, yeah, 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 exactly. My mom reads story online. I'm really, I was just telling my mom, <laughs> the Stephen Dixon story um, in the new issue is is mind-blowing. And I think actually it's gonna reach a lot of people kind of kind of later in life, because it's about issues. I think, But I think it'll break your heart as well, because um, it's about um, sort of transitioning, where you're gonna transition from this life to, to where you're gonna die, right? At home or in emergency room. What it's like to transfer the emergency room, to migrate over there on your last days. Why would people actually want to be at home? And how do you deal with that as a spouse when you feel like when you're gonna get helped over here? How do I know when you're making the best decisions for yourself? It's really, really heartbreaking and, and lovely. But I think it's really gonna hit, um, I think, a, a wide range of readers. And I was telling my mom, she has to read it. There's subscribers, they're gonna get it going. Well, we've almost used up all the SD card at this point. <laughs> but we do have one more question, if we could ask. Um, do you have any tips for aspiring writers hoping to break into the lit mag, small press publishing industry? Like, what steps to take, what to avoid, anything like that? Read more magazines. Start there. You want more? You guys are looking at me. <laughs> well, I, like I, I thought that was a pretty like I'm, strong, definitive. Uh, we could end it there. Okay. <laughs> still end it there. <laughs> no, I think that's yeah, true, yeah. man. I mean, that's a big part of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, if you want to do the thing, then you have to participate in the thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, by like literary community or you know, but you have to, you have to kind of play, play along, and you have to be part of it. And not just because you feel like you have to, right? You, you should want to be. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I don't know. I mean, what's the question? Like breaking yeah. down as a writer, or tips. being? I mean, tips. Tip. Like work. It sucks. It's hard. <laughs> I mean, there's no. So you have to read a lot and you have to write a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I would just quote um, uh, Blake Butler's idea about be an open node. Just get involved. I think yeah. if you don't get involved, and I mean, you guys are getting involved. It's definitely preaching to the choir, but. Like getting involved, if you if you read a book and like it, send the author a note or write a review of it, right? Yeah, read lit mags. And we, I mean, we feel like obligated to produce a lit mag someone would want to read. We never feel bad if someone spent money on it, right? Never, in, in the least. And so we think magazines, instead of charging submission fees, I'm not saying 
my lovely friends at Our Touch Bits and Feeds are, are these sort of magazines, but I think magazines always need to think about, am I making something that's worth someone's money? Yeah. That they actually should, instead of buying a hamburger or a beer or a cup of coffee or a book, they should buy this magazine. And then if magazines are that sort of place that they're willing to spend money on, don't pay some missions fees, buy some mags, get involved, right? Interview people, right? Do podcasts. Yeah. I think everyone should do podcasts. That's the best thing to break in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've talked about this too, like what is the literary magazine now, right? And I mean, the story in terms of, you know, maybe it is, it's just digital content over here. And maybe eventually when we have a student or somebody who's good with video content, maybe it's video content or podcast content. I mean, so maybe that's changing too. Yeah. Not instead of a print issue, exactly. right? Because that's part of it. It's like a bunch of- uh -huh. Sounds like a media company. Like an octopus. And that's, yeah, we don't want to recall <laughs> that, but we think that's essentially what it's, it is. Cool I mean, magazine. Yeah, it's store magazines, you know, it's sort of like a, a, a cousin to the literary magazine um, here at the York Review on campus. We're a relative of Story Supply Company, which makes uh, makes beautiful, beautiful journals, um, right? We have the website, we have the printer. They're all kind of different parts of like this conversation about narrative we want to have. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of it. I mean, we don't want to get stuck in a magazine like we make a magazine. The stories kind of spoke well, narrative. Because the stories are told in a variety of medium. You know what I mean? I mean, cut that to life. Right? I mean, it's not just in print. <laughs> it's not just audio. It's not just in video. Like all of them are awesome, and on a daily basis, I engage with stories on all of those levels. And that's, I think, you almost have to do that. I mean, we have to at least understand that that's the way it's happening. Yeah, and we're doing that is different because you know, just budgets and time and that sort of thing. But we have to understand that, that is part of it, of storytelling, regardless of you know, which one we like best. Yeah, and it's all this different than when we mentioned it. In like 2013 or yeah. 2014 or whatever. I mean, which it has to be. It's always going to change. I think. Yeah, it's led to you guys starting through a supply company, saying, "Oh, this we need actually. We want to make these things right." And it's led to us sort of reimagining and investing students with kind of responsibility, right, um, for for the publishing and story. You know, it's it's growing. I mean, so we're Paris Review at like 1955, possibly. <laughs> hey, Lauren Stein and um, I, I, George Plum to start the Paris Review is a huge um, idol of mine. Yeah, so we don't know where we'll be. Mm -hmm. We add 60 years to now, 76, <laughs> 2076. You, know, you never know, but yeah, yeah it's seems charging for something. Yeah. <laughs> That'd that. be like $50 by that time. Yeah. <laughs> Pay the print. Hopefully, I'll be able to charge for this podcast by then. Yeah. Right? <laughs> big, big gold material. Yeah, rough draft 2.0. All right, guys, thanks. Thank you. That was, that was awesome. Fun. Even just great. Under the Thank you, everybody. Limit. She asked me what you need, and I said, What's your name? So the story goes. Jesus Christ, Austin. This man is like literally. <laughs> Been eating this bag of Doritos for 45 minutes now, and they just keep coming up full chips. We're not talking crumbs. <laughs> it's like the bag of endless Doritos. It's like magical, like we're in a Harry Potter closet or something. Except, like, not at all. So, 
Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed getting a taste of two of the best, in my opinion, New York College professors. Wells editors. Yeah. Oh, my God. They have, like, their own little business in a bigger business, which is... Tell us about that business, Liz. <laughs> Please do. So Vito also has this awesome organization, uh, Story Supply Company, that sells uh, pocket notebooks and larger notebooks. They're coming out with some more new stuff, leather-bound covers for the notebooks, pencils. And every notebook that they sell, they also donate to organizations such as 826LA, one in D.C. There's a bunch across the country that benefit underprivileged kids or kids in after-school programs, tutoring programs, public schools. So check those out at storysupplyco.com. We're going to provide the link in this post. And also check out Story Magazine at storymagazine.org. We do a bunch of stuff online. And we just came out with our new print issue. It's the third issue. It's themed migration. So buy a copy, guys, storymagazine.org. You can find the notebook, or you can find the magazines on the notebook website as well. Speaking of migration, why don't you also migrate over to Flint Hills Bandcamp? Flint Hills sucks at Bandcamp or whatever. How you know Bandcamp and you know Flint Hills sucks, so just find it. Yeah. Also, Austin sucks for still eating these freaking Doritos. They're not your cheese flavored though. That doesn't mean anything to me. And for more bold Dorito experiences. <laughs> I'm just kidding, we probably should have plugged Doritos. No, Doritos yeah, we makes Doritos. Maybe we can get Doritos to sponsor us. I'm sure they would. We fit their ethos, right? Excuse me, we are now speaking directly to Doritos. <laughs> it's your move, Doritos. It's your move, Hit bro. us up. Chips are lit. We're lit. <laughs> okay. Perfect match. Bye! Thanks, guys. <laughs> See ya! <laughs> we out. Peace. <laughs>